Welcome everyone. My name is Jared Leader. I'm with the Smart Electric Power Alliance, SEPA. And we are about to get started here. Looks like we are sharing the presentation. Maddie, let me know when you're back to the beginning and I'll start. We're really excited uh, for this session and this discussion. And um, this is our fourth. And like I was just saying, we see a lot of familiar faces and names. So welcome back for those of you who are repeat customers and, and welcome to the first time listeners and callers today. And uh, on behalf of, of the DOE, SEPA and NREL, I'd like to welcome everybody. Uh, this is an incredible opportunity uh, that NREL has been a part of for many years. And Sonia Birdall, uh, our project lead and, uh, over at NREL, who I'm gonna hand it over to in a moment. Um, this initiative has some really great history and uh, currently brings us to today uh, as a discussion, virtual discussion on addressing energy equity. Uh, this is a utility only discussion uh, and we highly encourage everybody to come off mute, ask questions, even if you're new, the types of questions you're asking are important. Those are the types of considerations we wanna echo out to the industry and, and, and provide to other utilities that are, might be experiencing similar challenges or looking into different programs. Uh, the topic today is going to be focused on designing and funding LMI programs. Um, however, if you've been attending these series in the past, a lot of these, a lot of these topics around energy equity overlap and, that, and that's okay. Um, we, we really encourage everybody to speak up and uh, we have a great discussion leader, Jeff Feinberg, who we'll introduce in a moment uh, from Snohomish County PUD. And before we get into all of that, um, I'm gonna go over just some housekeeping logistics. So Matt, if you can go to the next slide. Um, of course, your knowledge and experience are key ways to do that. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Zoom function, raise your hand, or if you wanna just keep it old school and come off camera and raise your hand manually and we'll see you, or, or type a question into the chat box. Uh, we'll be monitoring throughout, so um, there's no wrong way to do it. So any, any way works. And if you have examples or links or case studies or articles, please send those uh, and, and put them into the chat. That's really one, one way, one real, real important way that we as a team at SEPA and NREL provide information insights out to the industry as part of this project. Um, so the, the project's goals really are to convene, but also to capture. So if you have examples, share them, put anything into the chat and ask questions throughout, uh, don't be shy. The session is recorded and will be available to the public and you all uh, on smartgrid.gov. And the presentations that and the slides that we share today will also be sent out to the group after the meeting. Um, I believe that's it for me on the logistics. So I'm gonna hand it over to my colleague, Sonia. Sonia, take it away. All right, next slide, Maddie. All right, I just wanna give you a little background on the Voices of Experience. It is an initiative that is funded by the Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. And it started back in 2011, following the Recovery Act Smart Grid, grid Program. And when the federal government through the Recovery Act funded a lot of the implementation of emerging technologies in the industry, we realized there was a lot to learn that was not being captured in the formal process that we were doing by having utilities report back to the DOE, uh, report their data, et cetera. That was a large part of the project, but there was also a lot of information that really could only be shared peer to peer. So we started this forum in order for utilities to exchange ideas. We used to do it in person. Now we're virtual. There's you know, pros and cons of being in person versus virtual. We have a, made it available to many more people by having virtual meetings. 
Um, but there's also nothing like an in-person exchange when you're sitting around a conference room table or, you know, talking with your colleagues and sharing and learning from each other. Our goal really is to capture kind of the high level insights and advice that come from you and share them with the rest of the, the industry. We try to keep you anonymous in it, but preserve the voice that comes through in these. Um, we try to focus on areas that pose challenges or are critical for energy transformation. In the past, we've, we've done more technology focused um, voices of experience discussions. And then in last year, we started to conclude trends in that. And one of the trends that we noticed in the industry was electrification. So we started talking about electrification and two areas that sort of bubbled up out of our discussions on electrification were a new type of, I would say, customer engagement that has morphed into more community engagement, we're calling it now. And there's just a lot to be learned about that. That's not unlike, you know, uh, 10 years ago when people were first introducing smart meters, for example, to their customers and kind of what you have to do to educate your customers and get them to accept a new technology and so um, customer engagement or community engagement became a focal point of this process, as well as energy equity bubbled up in how utilities specifically are addressing energy equity. And that's got us to this discussion today. Um, and, uh, and our goal out of this discussion, again, capturing those insights from you, and then we're going to help, um, help provide educational uh, resources to the rest of the utility industry. So um, any uh, questions that you have on that, please direct them to me. You can go on smartgrid.gov and find the whole series that we've done. I think we're on 11, 11 or 12 guidebooks now and topics that we've covered. So um, it's really interesting, like our guide that we started out with, which was um, uh, around smart grid deployment, customer engagement around um, smart grid deployment or smart meter deployment. Uh, that was, we published, I think, in 2013, and it still gets downloaded today. So I think that is a testament to the knowledge base in this industry. So um, next slide, please. I'm going to introduce to you uh, Jeff Feinberg. So I, uh, I think we came across Jeff in our first, uh, or his colleague, in our first in-person uh, meeting on the topic of addressing energy equity that we had in Portland in May. And I believe Jeff's, uh, Jeff's colleague was there and she had a lot to say about what they were doing at Snohomish County PUD. She was unavailable to co-lead this with Jeff. So Jeff's here with us. And um, Jeff is the manager of market segments at Snohomish County PUD, which is by the way, the nation's 12th largest public utility. His team manages the delivery and implementation of energy services programs that are focused on energy efficiency, distributed energy resources, small renewables, and basically anything else related to customer participation and experience. And that's probably a lot like many of you. Um, additionally, Jeff works across the division as an income qualified assistant program advisor. He has a lot more that I could tell you about him and his career, but I'm going to turn it over to Jeff. Thank you, Sonia. And um, it's great to be here. And yeah, everything I'm going to share today, I'm kind of not just uh, sharing our work, but the work of a lot of different team members uh, for us here at Snohomish County PD. Um, and you know, uh, it's always uncomfortable and a little bit difficult to write those bios. You're never really sure what to include about yourself. Um, but one of kind of the simple additional point that I want to make is um, I'm not sure how everyone on this call has found their way into this work and into the utility space. For me, I came from a customer service background and um, a lot of prior experience with retail and uh, nonprofit management and um, kind of just got pulled into the utility world. But um, but I've also really found that, that the work we get to do every single day, um, especially now with added kind of importance around equity um, and accessibility for all our customers, uh, it really just is a perfect alignment of um, both community, um, kind of my local geography, and taking really good care of people and our neighbors. And so I'm excited to share with you what we're learning, what we're working on, um, and really just to hear more of the kind of questions and discussions that follow. And so if we can, uh, next slide. Uh, and we'll go on. This is this is our topic today and kind of what I'm going to be talking about. So just a little bit of information about our utility so you can kind of have some context for some of what I'm going to share. 
Um, we have a large uh, group of territory that we are responsible for. So it's 2,200 square miles. It's a real mix of rural and um, urban areas. If you look on the far left there, that's I-5, right? So uh, basically we border King County and Seattle. Um, and so the I-5 kind of corridor is where a lot of our cities um, live, but then a lot of that east that um, is quite rural and quite remote. And so that's some of the fun and the challenge and the complexity of serving our community is um, we have no real um, one size fits all because we've got a lot of different use cases of what we see with our customer base. Um, we are the second largest public utility in Washington state right behind Seattle City Light um, and 12th in the nation. Um, we are presently 97% carbon free um, and really proud of that. Uh, most of our power does come from hydro and we are governed by a board of three publicly elected commissioners. Um, so a little bit about our customers, because I think that's important as we talk about kind of what we're doing with programs and lessons we've learned. And so if we can, next slide. So here's just some quick uh, demographics. And so um, on the left, what you see there is a map that's uh, put together with Department of Health here in Washington State. Um, and so we're really fortunate. There's a lot of really good resources and um, tools we've got here within Washington State. Um, but, I, but I brought this up because um, I just wanted to kind of give you some context for our community. And so um, of the many filters that we can put on this uh, map, um, what you see here highlighted with the darkest colors are um, our socioeconomic vulnerability um, communities. And so what's, what's really fascinating, as I said before, the left side kind of corresponds with the I-5 corridor and a lot of urban areas. And so you can kind of see like, okay, that makes sense. You have poverty in some of your cities. I can see that. But then if you look kind of in the top right, um, that area is kind of Oso, Darrington, Granite Falls. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about that is that is a very rural and remote area. And I share that because, I, again, I think that it's important to think about some of the same kind of programs that might be able to reach and serve well um, our low and moderate income communities in urban settings may not also be the same programs that will serve those in the very rural parts of our territory well. And that's something that, that we have to keep on our radar and that is really important to us as we think about design and we think about what we're learning and what we want to do next is, um, again, a one size fits all tool or a program that is supposed to hit, you know, this income level alone. And maybe that's the only filter or the only application point might not be um, the right strategy for us based on what we know about our customers. Um, some more details right here on the right. Um, if we're using 200% of federal poverty level, that represents about 21% of our population. If we expand that to think a little bit more about moderate income households and we maybe go to 80% of area median income, now we're talking about 45% of our customer base. And so for us, when we think about this, there's not just the regulatory um, importance of making sure that we're making um, programs and uh, energy affordable for customers. There's not just that piece, but for us, it's such a large part of our community and our customer base that it really is about returning value for all ratepayers. Um, and so that's something we're kind of constantly thinking about as we think about the value proposition or the cost effectiveness of things is really helping our entire utility and our customer base see that there's, there's a lot of value to be found here, not just for the end use um, recipient of a program or an approach, uh, but rather our entire customer base customer base. Um, if we're talking about energy burden and we say anything above 6%, there's about 21,000 households. Um, something I'll speak to here in just a minute is this number regarding energy burden, that that primarily comes for us um, from Washington State because Washington State will provide us that information, but they don't tell us which 21,000 households. And so one of the things we're working at is you know, the customers that we're aware of their income situation, we can understand and determine their energy burden. Um, however, there's a whole range of customers um, where our state kind of knows, well, there's, there's, you know, these are energy burdened customers, and yet we don't have their income information yet so that we can kind of target them um, appropriately. That was probably a little convoluted way to say that. So I'll, um, <laughs> I'll get into more depth there in a minute. But again, um, when we think about our community, 33% of our customers are renters, 22% are limited English speakers, and 14% are seniors. And again, just trying to show you some of the variety of customers and proportions here. Um, so as you can think about as we design, you know, how do we design for each and every single one of these segments within, um, say, the low and moderate income customers? Next slide, please. 
All right, so I've got three slides where I kind of talk about big key concepts that we're working on. And again, I'm just going to share really briefly about these, what we've done, what we're doing, um, and then we'll just be open for conversation. Um, but the first one is, uh, for us, it's been really important to stay knowledgeable about opportunities and being willing to engage in a variety of ways to make things happen. Um, and, you know, simply put, and, and I know that a lot of us in this room have been talking about this in our previous talks have been about this. We're kind of in this really um, unique and exciting time where there's kind of unprecedented um, state and federal dollars that are available um, to really kind of create some of these opportunities to have multiple funding mechanisms to help build out a program. And what's been really important for us, not just over the last couple of years, post pandemic and during pandemic, but you know, even kind of leading up to that was for us to make sure that we're staying very much attuned to what is available, where is it available, um, what are the mechanisms, um, and, and how might we support that. And so I just want to give you a couple examples and, and how we had to wear kind of different hats for the different types of funding streams in order to maximize the benefit for our customers. So the first here in Washington State is we have something called the Clean Energy Fund. And so from time to time, um, there will be several different type of grant opportunities that will show up. Um, underneath this. Sometimes there's a really nice runway in terms of, you know, several months to kind of conceptualize and see the availability and respond. Um, sometimes uh, it's a rather quick turnaround uh, in terms of how long we have to respond uh, to these grant opportunities. The example that I'm going to highlight is we've recently been awarded um, a clean energy fund for low-income community solar. Um, and so when this was spun up, we had about two months um, from whenever we uh, first saw the grant opportunity until when we needed to get our application into commerce. And I don't know about your utility, but for our utility is two months is not really the kind of time frame we need for a project like that, especially um, something of the magnitude of trying to set up a community solar array. For us, we had just completed our first one in March of 2019 and kind of brought that online. It was really well received. And there was about 10% of that project that was dedicated um, to low-income customers, and we were really excited about that. And so as soon as that went live, we were thinking, okay, we're ready to do another community solar somewhere in the future. We really want to do more for um, the low-income part of our community as it relates to that community solar to make sure everyone has access, but we're not sure what. But when this grant opportunity um, popped up, we had to move really quickly. We had to quickly kind of organizationally not only make the decision that we wanted to pursue this, um, but we had to kind of get our resources together so that we could answer the questions and so that we could actually understand, um, you know, if somehow we are awarded this grant, can we actually execute against it? Um, and so basically what it taught us is we have to be faster and we have to be more nimble than we've ever been if we really want to take advantage of these opportunities. So we learned a lot through this project. Um, we were awarded the grant. Um, we are an active uh, work on the project at this point, and we're really excited. 100% of the project is going to go to um, low-income customers in our community. So we're really excited, but kind of the key takeaway is not only do we need to be knowledgeable, but we really needed to align our organization to quickly respond, and that's something that we're trying to kind of keep with us, and, and I'm sure a lot of you guys are kind of like us too. Uh, when the pandemic hit, um, we realized we could transition and go a lot faster than we thought we could because necessity compelled us to do so. And I think in many regards, um, trying to help our vulnerable customers is kind of the same thing. Now with these unprecedented fundings um, opportunities in place, we need to be able to figure out how can we be thoughtful and responsible, but also how can we go fast and work together and collaborate maybe internally than we ever have before. And so we're trying to kind of maintain some of those relationships we've built so that we can be ready to say yes to the next one. Um, the other option here that are other piece that I want to talk about with the, the federal TRAP dollars, this one was a little bit unique in the sense that, you know, this was the federal treasury money or coming from the Department of Treasury that was setting the rules. Um, but as a consumer owned utility, we actually weren't able to be a recipient of these funds. And so cities could get the money, municipalities could get the money. Um, and some utilities could if they were a city utility, so on and so forth. But we had no direct path to these funds. And yet we saw that what was written in the language of the law was that utility assistance was a part of what these dollars uh, were to be used for. So we quickly tried to determine, okay, who are the people in our community that are going to receive parts of this TRAP funding? And for us, Nahomish County was one of the big beneficiaries. So we immediately, I think the law passed in December of 2019, and in January, we were meeting with Snohomish County basically to say, we are available, we are open, we are willing. If, if it's program design you need help with, if it's process delivery you need help with, um, we pointed to a non-disclosure agreement that we already had with the county, basically to say, in whatever way we can be a helpful and collaborative partner 
we want to be because we realize that that a portion of this needs to help utility customers and we have those and we we've got great data around um, where the help could be most meaningful let us help you um, and and that was really um, effective they went out and they did find a grant partner um, to run their utility assistance program but because we were engaged from the get-go and basically there with our open hands to say we will be whatever level of partner whatever level of engagement you'd like to help you um, not only allocate these funds, but get them out the door to the customers that need them. Um, they basically got their grant partner and their grant partner and us, we started meeting weekly and we started to build out a program and we were able to secure two, $2 million, actually a little over $2 million for our customers because of that, um, which was the most of any utility in our area. Um, granted, we had the largest territory, but we know that that was also directly related to our ability um, to be engaged, to be there, um, to be creative and to say, you know, we can we can see what of our current processes we might be able to leverage to really maximize the speed at which we can get these dollars out the door. Because I know a lot of these dollars, a lot of times, um, the, the timetable means we need to figure out how can we quickly identify who needs the help and get the help to them. Um, and so we knew that was a service we could provide. And so in that instance, we thought of ourselves less as trying to get the money and more about how can we provide our partners with this great service so our customers can receive this benefit. Um, and so again, stay knowledgeable, stay engaged and be ready to collaborate. Um, and, and we're again, continuing some of those partnerships. Uh, next slide. And I should be, I should say, I'm going fast on purpose because I wanna leave lots of time to hear um, what y'all are doing so I can learn from you guys um, and for questions. And so if I'm going too fast, please interrupt me. Um, or what have you, or put questions in chat. So the next key concept besides staying engaged and collaborating is evolve. we have to be willing to evolve our program offerings to incorporate um, multiple outcomes. And, you know, we've got a few different examples of this, but the one I'm going to share, this is one of the newer programs that we brought into our portfolio um, that I think really kind of captures this multi-outcome thinking. Um, and it's our energy design assistance program. This is a program that we have a great partner, um, that, that we a great vendor that we use for this program, and it's for um, commercial and multifamily new construction, which historically had been a hard to reach market for us. Since we've entered this, this program, it's it's not been. I did see um, Allison Decker on the call. Um, just shout out to you, Allison, and all your help helping us get this program off the ground. Um, but, I, but what I wanted to share about this program is um, rather than thinking of it only as an energy efficiency program for new construction, um, from the very beginning, we were able to kind of think about what are the additional incentives we might be able to offer to move the needle in other areas? Because as we know in our work, oftentimes um, we get what we count, right? And so if we focus primarily on kilowatt hour savings only or capacity savings only, or that's the big driver we're constantly talking about with any of our programming and that's what we're measuring against, well, we're probably gonna get that result. And so what we're really trying to do is adapt our thinking and our program offerings to incorporate equity, to incorporate accessibility, to incorporate um, socioeconomic levels within our programming and design so that we can understand, um, are we actually effectively achieving all the outcomes we need to achieve as a portfolio and as an organization? Um, so one of the things we did with this program is in addition to, you know, paying incentives for the energy efficiency of new construction is we've also, for buildings that are dedicated to 51% income qualified, um, there's actually an additional incentive for that work. For things like grid harmonization and demand response ready capability, there's an incentive for that. For electric vehicle supply equipment, there's an incentive for that. And so these are all strategic goals and outcomes that we want for our portfolio. And rather than having, oh, this is our EV program over here, or this is our new construction program over here. Instead, what we're trying to do is think about how can we make sure that all of our programs are running towards all these strategic goals at the same time. Um, and so again, this is just one example, and this is an, a constant kind of evolution of what we're trying to do. Um, but we're looking at some of our kind of longstanding uh, foundational programs in our portfolio, and we're thinking, how do we evolve them as well so that um, maybe it's adding additional tiers, maybe it's adding additional incentives, so that we make sure that we're counting all the things that are important to us instead of just what's been historically important to us. And so um, that's a way to maximize our funding as well when we really think about it, right? If, if every program dollars we spend um, is accomplishing various outcomes, well, then we really are stretching those dollars and the value of that investment. Um, and that's, that's another piece is as we have had, you know, adopted new language, we try to think far less about spending our budget and more about providing value for every dollar we use of our budget. Um, 
small thing, but I think a really important distinction in this work. And next slide. And this is my last one, and then I'll uh, share the mic here. Um, but this is this this slide kind of represents the stuff that we're not uh, great at yet, but we're working on, and we're learning, and we're adapting. Um, and basically, we want to connect the data that we already know and that we've already collected across our utility. And we also want to leverage our community stakeholders and their expertise to teach us what we don't know yet. Um, and the first is we really need to acknowledge the difference between participation and reaching. I know in the beginning, I spent a little bit of time talking about kind of the diversity, even within, say, a certain economic segment um, or socioeconomic segment of our community. And I just think that that's so important because oftentimes um, we might look at um, participation and we might say, well, we're meeting our um, here in the state of Washington, we have an Energy Independence Act compliance goal regarding um, energy efficiency savings that we have to deliver to the state. Um, we may see, well, we're hitting our target, so clearly we are reaching our community. When, when the reality is, is there is certainly participation happening, and we are getting our target as it relates to that goal. But if we're thinking about reaching the community, are we doing the right kind of detailed analysis to know that participation and reaching are really different? Um, and we're seeing that we've got great gaps as we look at um, historic energy efficiency program participation and where some of the needs for say, constrained grids and circuits are greatest. Um, we're seeing that there's some real gaps there. And so we're working to kind of thread those pieces of data, um, which leads me to bullet two, bringing together what we already know. So at our utility, um, there's great data in power supply as it relates to cost-effective resource acquisition. There's great data in system planning and protection as it relates to constrained grids and circuits and that sort of thing. Um, we even know in energy efficiency where people have participated or some in customer service, what income um, level people are at. Or with our data and analytics team, we've got some third-party data. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring all these different data sets together to build dashboards that aren't just good from a reporting and compliance and auditing standpoint that are highly usable and intuitive for our program um, delivery and implementation team. We have a heat map that our system planning and protection team has been building for a long time. Um, and we're adding all these unique filters to it that have to do with income, that have to do with program participation so that we can kind of align a bunch of these filters on top of each other. So then we can really think about micro-targeted programs. Um, and one example might be, um, for example, in our master retail program, maybe every customer in our community, every residential customer in our community has a certain rebate that's available to them on a smart thermostat. Well, if you happen to be in a constrained grid circuit and this is a census tract where we know there's some socioeconomic need, well, maybe you get an enhanced rebate above and beyond what the total customer base gets. And, um, and so we're working on some of those kind of program concepts so that our program managers have really great data um, and that we can move beyond what we've historically done, which is these big broadcast programs, but instead think about maximizing the value of program dollars by achieving multiple outcomes. Um, I talked about micro programs. I think I've said enough there. Designing for equity, not just layering in tiers. And I think you know, the energy design assistance is kind of a first step for us in that. But we're really trying to put a lot of pressure on ourselves now that every time we think or conceptualize of a new program, whether it's for commercial customers or residential, that we're asking ourselves, um, what are the other metrics besides simply savings alone that this program might achieve? Um, I know Seattle and Tacoma, I think you might be on this call, but you guys are doing some really good work around that as well of um, being able to kind of fill out a scorecard to understand what value a program is really going to bring to your portfolio. And we're trying to do the same so that we can, again, um, get what we count and that what we count is all the things that matter to us instead of just pieces of what matters to us. And then the last piece is just, um, we are, this is something we were doing a lot right before the pandemic is trying to bring different groups of community stakeholders together. Um, and instead of saying, hey, we've got this really great program, would you go share it with your customers? Instead saying, hey, here's a need that we have at the utility. Here's um, your customers, our mutual customers are, uh, are people we think might be able to benefit from some sort of program that would serve this need, help us design it, help us think about um, what would be meaningful to our shared customers and how we might implement it. And, and so trying to build those things together um, instead of us just saying, hey, we've got great ideas and we want you to go sell this. Um, we're trying to be a lot more of a collaborator um, partner. And instead of trying to do things to our customers, instead do things with our customers um, that our customers might actually want and be able to understand the value of. So, you know, that's a lot. 
Um, but I just kind of wanted to share you what we're learning, what we're working on, and what we hope to hear more about. Unmute myself. Jeff, you are have an amazing, uh, you're an amazing fountain of knowledge on this stuff. And I think like we will find your, this slide in our guidebook that we're writing because you've summarized it so well. And I'm glad, also glad that we're recording you because we can't possibly capture everything you said, but you have so much great information. That being said, I want to have Maddie back up a couple of slides and I'm going to start with the first uh, slide, that one right there about key concepts, we want to have you unpack some of these things. Ted, you have an excellent question in the chat, and I hope people will um, answer Ted's question, and um, and we're going to circle back to you, Ted, on that. But first, I want Jeff to unpack some of this stuff he's just uh, gone through with us, and I want any of you, any of any of us at the roundtable, feel free to raise your hand and ask a question as well. So. Back to this slide. Jared, kick us off. Thanks. So I've, I just had a, I had a question about um, so, so some of the challenges uh, that you you all are running into, especially around identifying the, the the communities that are best suited to be served by these programs, and it goes to the question that that's in the chat, but how are you able to retroactively look and see, are these programs working? Are we doing what we intended to do? Um, I know that the state has some funding that you all were able to leverage into these programs and subsidize some of the cost for low-income customers to allow them to have access to things like fast chargers and community solar. Um, but what are you all doing retroactively to these programs to determine the success? Yeah, so honestly, it's like we're, we're really just stepping into it. One of the things we did whenever we did our conservation potential assessment um, this past round um, or our and our demand response potential assessment, which are um, statutory processes we need to create to see what opportunities there might be in our territory. But it looks at historic participation. It looks at future opportunity. Um, we did a geospatial analysis so that we really could kind of plot over time um, what households we know and what businesses we know had already participated with us in some regard. Um, now, we can't do that for all measures, such as retail, right? We can't tell where necessarily a light bulb has been installed. But when we think about maybe some of the larger programs like HVAC, windows, insulation, things like that, we can kind of see where this is occurring and where it's not occurring. We can even look at things like low-income weatherization. Where has this happened and where has it not happened? Um, and then, like, per, for example, a really good example is when we see where, where low-income weatherization is happening and it's happening in a census tract that we know is socioeconomically a lot of people should actually be eligible for, but yet we see limited participation historically over time in that community, it's led us to say, um, we need to talk to these customers more to understand for those that have not participated yet, why haven't they? Is it an application barrier? Is it maybe because they need their roof fixed before they could even get any kind of assistance and they tried to apply, but they couldn't get their roof fixed? So we're starting to kind of step into some of those sort of smaller subsets that we're starting to identify to kind of learn um, what else do we need to know? So I, I don't know if that's mm -hmm. fully answering the question there, but I, that's that's what we're working on so that we can kind of identify um, how we can get better at this. And then Jeff, um, when you, on this slide here, when you say uh, you're advising people to stay knowledgeable and be willing to engage, how, how at your utility, how do you guys stay knowledgeable? Because they're uh, you know, programs evolve and announcements are made. You kind of covered some of that about being nimble, but tell us about the process. Like how do you stay up to date on all of the opportunities that you could potentially participate in? Yeah. So there it's a, it's a, there's a variety of ways um, for us. And again, I know we're a little bit larger probably than some of the people on the call too, but um, so we have a government affairs team that is highly engaged at both the state um, local community and the federal level with their kind of ear to the ground always where they're constantly kind of flagging things for our team saying, hey, this might be something to pursue. This might be something to listen to. We've heard about this. This is a webinar you need to jump on, so on and so forth. So we've got them sort of looking out at really a really large kind of scope 
manner. Um, then within our own team, we do have uh, some strategy and policy members. Susie, who is not able to be on the call today, is one of those um, for our team in energy services, where they're out there um, kind of beating the bushes, trying to understand um, what, what is available um, as it re specifically relates to our portion of the utility, which typically is these energy services programs. Um, and so they're kind of listening as well. Um, and then the last thing is for any of us that have these partnerships already, um, where we've got program partners, say with our LIHEAP community action agency, so on and so forth. We're constantly trying to have two-way conversation about um, what opportunities might you guys have and know about in your program and how can we support those. Um, the thing that was really effective before the pandemic is we were having quarterly um, stakeholder conversations where we would invite people in income qualified housing, uh, our food bank coalition, um, basically a lot of our service providers from for all our territory. And really it was a very limited agenda. It was mainly like, what's going on with our customers? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are the trends and where are the opportunities? Um, and then basically just trying to respond as possible. So I would say um, keeping all the arms out is, is basically the answer to that question, Sonia. It's, it's um, making sure that more than one person is responsible for paying attention to all these potential opportunities and being really creative, I think is the biggest thing. Being creative and being willing to say, um, okay, we haven't done that yet, but maybe we should, and maybe we should try that. Um, yeah. And I also like what you said about having this ongoing relationship with potential partners that might be from the an LMI housing program or food bank or something like you're looking at them as potential future um, funding partners on something, which I had not heard that before. I, I guess they would sort of be a, a community-based organization. But uh, before we leave this, this slide, anybody else have any comments or questions or want to add something uh, to what we've been talking about here? Hi, this is Teresa with Evergy. And um, I noticed, you know, talking about, you know, how do you tap into um, other agencies uh, or have knowledge of, you know, what's available uh, so that we can assist them maybe in getting uh, funds to our customers. And at Evergy, I think I had mentioned before, um, we came up with a program called KC Lilac, which is Low Income Leadership Assistance Collaborative, where um, we have reached out to, you know, several community partners, um, uh, different organizations, and we, we, we have formed this collaborative. So that's one way we can find out, you know, who has what funding. And then what we do is when there's a customer in need of something outside of energy efficiency, I mean, uh, our program focuses on three things, energy efficiency, uh, home health and structural repairs. And so we know there's money out there. We know that there's resources, you know, that may have funding. And so when we, um, a customer calls into our Connect Center and they tell them about this program, then they can make a connection with uh, individuals as a part of this collaborative effort to try to assist that customer with whatever need, you know, they may have. So that's one thing that we've done at Evergy is actually formed a, a collaborative effort where we're working with local resources and organizations and coming together as one to assist the customers, um, you know, in our uh, income eligible communities. Hey, Teresa, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking, you know, a few weeks ago, you mentioned that you are finding ways to reach income eligible customers. And my question was going to be, well, how are you finding different resources and funding for that? And, and you just addressed that and answered that right there. So I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question follow up for you. And and Jeff and, and anybody really on the call who has experience or questions about this topic. But I think one of the one of the things that a lot of folks think about when they think about equity in this space is electric vehicles. And I know that Jeff, one of the programs that you all got involved with at the state was to was around fast chargers and making sure that fast chargers were deployed in areas that, you know possibly didn't have charging infrastructure. And um, I think this is an interesting debate. We've had it in the past during our electrification initiative, Sonia, around, you know, where do you put the chargers and how do you encourage, you know, is it rebates and incentives for the vehicles? Is it the charging infrastructure? Is it everything? And I just want to just have, you know, a conversation or anybody feel free to chime in around 
uh, funding mechanisms specifically for EVs and uh, ways to um, roll out EVs equitably. equitably. So the, one of the quick comments I would make is, so yeah, we, we just received same thing, Clean, clean Energy Fund, um, two different grants related to that. One was for DC fast chargers where we put them near the I-5 corridor because we knew that was a need and there weren't any yet in our area of I-5. But the second was a partnership we're actually doing with one of our income qualified housing providers. And this was one of those great examples where um, they are highly engaged in terms of, um, you know, they've got LEED certified platinum net zero buildings, all these kinds of things that they try to build um, on behalf of their constituents and their customers. And so whenever this opportunity came up for clean energy fund uh, dollars around um, fast charging, uh, they basically jumped on it. And, and so we said, hey, as the utility, we will work with you um, to help you facilitate this, right? So in, in one regard, um, the grant is, is their grant, and we're just now the utility helping this income qualified housing provider um, get DC fast chargers for their customers um, that the state is helping to subsidize. And so um, we're working on it, you know, in a project lead capacity and that sort of thing. Um, and so anyway, I just share that to say, I don't know that we've got it solved yet, but I think there's a key piece of when we do see opportunities up there is reaching out to those in our community that we know are serving low and medium income customers and saying, hey, is this something you might want to work with us on a grant application for um, so that, you know, we can sort of facilitate that in, in the, uh, the best way possible. I'm going to jump over to Ted. You have a great question in the in the box and if you want to come on on your camera and or microphone only and speak um i'd love you have to have you ask the group because it's a great question or i can read it oh well with that kind of introduction i gotta join uh, <laughs> uh no i i i really it's just i i and i and patrick provided a great a resource in the chat as well but it did kind of point to my thing if there's a hundred different ways to measure equity you know, where do we start? What are ways to understand, you know, if you're actually improving in this space? You know, we've kind of got to the point where we're kind of able to identify some of the people who need more equitable access in the programs, but how do we really know if we're making any headway? And I also wanted to go point to your second question about asking people if they have any research on why people don't participate. So I'm add that to your question that you just posed. Sure. I mean, I think, again, I mean, I know a lot of this is focused on low income, but I kind of wonder if I kind of feel that might be a bit narrow, right? I mean, we have senior facilities. We have facilities for people who have uh, disabilities, right? And I, I'm just, I guess we're trying to figure out how to do, you know, to ask these non-participants, like how, who, who should we be asking where the barriers are, right? Let's say beyond, let's say a very traditional barrier analysis that you might see in your potential study, right? Where you're going to get, I would say your typical answers, but maybe a not deep enough to really understand these issues around equity because, so I just wondered if anybody actually had any experience in doing that type of study. For us, it's going to be the first time and we're not doing it till this fall. So if anybody has any lessons learned around trying to, let's say, dig deeper to find out what some of these barriers are, I, I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, if, I, if I'm understanding, this is Teresa uh, again, if I'm understanding what you're asking, we know that um, uh, income eligible, you know, if you're a 200% FPL or, or state medium income, a lot of times those individuals can be senior citizens, they can be individuals on disability and they really don't fall, they fall outside of that, but they still need assistance. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, true. I mean, I'm just okay. wondering if, we, if we've if we narrowed it too much by saying income, right? If we said, oh, yes. well, there's these seniors who fall outside of that, let's right. say, definition or you know, people who live in a rental unit who fall out of that definition or something. So. Uh, that was, yeah, really just kind of, and, and, we, yeah. go and ahead. Yes, uh, uh, that is something that uh, Evergy we're looking into. Um, from a personal experience, you know, I manage the weatherization program. And uh, of course, you know, it's 200% FPL or 60% uh, of the state median income. 
well, my parents are elderly. Uh, my dad's 91, my mom's 82. And they fall outside of that, that uh, income bracket and they both are on social security. So they made $850 too much a year and they couldn't qualify for weatherization. So we do have, you know, we have that gap is that how do you help those individuals that are that are on a fixed income, but they don't qualify because they make maybe $50 too much. And as you know, um, you know, like some, I think last year they were $50 too much. And then um, the, uh, the property level, I guess uh, dollars, you know, were added or you can make a little bit more, but what happens, the, the income requirements change for the program, but then social security provided an increase. So they still don't qualify. So we do have to figure out how to address those individuals that fall outside of what we're trying to define as low income. I also want to uh, point people towards the chat. If you pull that up on your um, great information chat, um, Louise, if you want to come on camera, you have some really good insights about you know, specific communities or people that are not participating in programs, they may be eligible and you have some really great insights in there. And Roz, um, you as well. Yeah, good, good afternoon, Louise, uh, over here. Yeah, that's one of the main issues I, I, I included on the chat that as a Mexican immigrant myself, um, I can understand why so many of the uh, Hispanic population might not want to interact with the utilities, at least in Mexico, the electric utilities owned by the government. And an experience that I had uh, during my time in Oklahoma with the commission and interacting with the utilities was that, you know, anytime that there was a, like an energy audit or they were trying to come and install LED light bulbs, the last thing that um, Hispanic population wanted was uh, people from the utility coming into the house and finding out how many people were living there, uh, asking questions, you know, about income, that kind of stuff. So that was a big barrier right there. The other thing was that most of the programs back then were only in English. And so uh, having access to the information in, in their own language and then one of the solutions that they implemented the utilities was to reach out to them through churches, community centers, uh, friends. Uh, they did uh, kind of like a workshops at these uh, facilities with, um, I guess, Hispanic um, members of the utility that they would teach the handyman about, you know, you can apply, you can talk to your friends about, um, you know, energy efficiency, rebates if you do, let's say, an uh, uh, AC unit or a water heater that is energy efficient. Um, so teaching them um, with people that they trust. Uh, another good example, instead of spending money on um, commercials on TV and Spanish, they went uh, with the DJs on the radio, right? So because uh, they would talk about it, it was cheaper and, and they had a better, uh, um, I guess, um, uh, results from it. Cool. Yes, um, and Leslie, great comment to Louise's um, Louis's text in there. Um, it, feel free to pipe in, Leslie. You summed it up extremely well. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. I was just gonna say yeah, I agree with them, um, especially thinking through. When you are struggling financially, you're not thinking about, oh, let me call my energy company or go to this website and try to translate it and figure out these different programs that are available to me. Like you have a lot of other things you're worrying about. Um, and I had put in the chat that I know my company started using an automated tool to see if it seems like a customer might be eligible for LIHEAP to connect them to applying and to getting that assistance. But again, LIHEAP only helps so many kinds of potential customers. And so I'm, I'm interested in hearing all the different things that y'all are doing to help provide other services too. And if you have anything on that automated tool, I would love to have you um, send me an email or Jared an email if you have his email address about that, because we'd like to know more about that tool so we can include it as uh, a resource for utilities, an idea for a resource too. There's Jared's 
um, email address in the chat. Um, I would like uh, you to go to the next slide, Maddie, and there's, uh, okay. This slide, Jeff, you talked about um, basically getting the most bang for your buck in programs. And you talked about having them, them have supporting multiple goals of the utility. So I'm just gonna start by asking you like, is it, has it been difficult in your organization to kind of do that cross department collaboration on a program? So it, it really hasn't. I think if anything, what it's helped us do is kind of constantly sell the value proposition. Now, everything that's related to this program, um, this all kind of lives within sort of this big, broad umbrella that we have in energy services, right? In terms of um, we're responsible somehow because of my role, we're responsible for our energy efficiency goals. We're responsible for our um, socioeconomic uh, accessibility goals in progress um, and kind of the customer experience. So we get to kind of drive all that. And then things like demand response and potential and all that, that is also kind of lands in our department as we need to deliver that for power supply. Um, so um, it's not been challenging. I think the bigger thing is we're just needing to reframe um, the value proposition and helping our leadership understand that this is more expensive, but this is far more valuable to go this route. Um, luckily with this program, this program is not even crazy expensive. Um, and we look at uh, cost effectiveness at the portfolio level at our utility, which, which I think really helps as well because we can balance things really well that way. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm kind of rambling in the answer, but it's not been difficult. I think the bigger thing is we do feel like it's incumbent upon us to educate and help them see how traditionally thinking of cost effective in the one way we've always thought about it isn't the right way to think about um, kind of the end result of our programs. I'd love to hear from others that are having success in this way though too. So I have a question about this program. Um, this is, uh, I see that this is particularly in new construction. How about remodeling or building upgrades? And I understand that some programs are designed for the owner of the property and it might be a rental property. So do you have programs that specifically target landlords and to incentivize them to do efficiency upgrades to their property because they're not generally ones who benefit and it often comes at the cost of the, ex the renter because the rent goes up. So do you have anything around landlords? So we do not yet, we're working on that. I will say um, our neighbors to the South, Tacoma uh, is, is launching a program exactly to that. I don't know if anybody from Tacoma is on this call, but um, we're kind of watching with a lot of interest in what they're doing. Um, but I know one of the components of their program that we're interested in as we think about bringing it to our community is, um, you know, they're having landlords and owners sign covenants so that, you know, for three years, uh, they may not raise rent beyond, say, regular inflation or something to that effect um, in an effort to make sure that the wrong outcome doesn't happen or the unintended consequence doesn't occur. Um, but we're looking at that, and, um, but we've not yet done that ourselves. It actually looks like Ho Hollis Tamura. From, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> hey there. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure if Sarah was on here. Um, yes, we're... <laughs> Officially, September 1st, we're going to go live with this program. And the idea is that the, it's a five-year agreement. Um, we are paying 100% of the insulation. Um, all the other measures, it would, it's going to be on a forgivable loan. So as long as they're, they're keeping their rent, no, let's see, they cannot raise their rent more than 6% of the previous year. And for every year that they abide by that rule, the 20% of the loan amount is forgiven. 
So if for five years, they actually pay nothing, their entire loan will be forgiven. You mentioned that this, this program will be available in September. Are you, do you all have any educational material or links that we may be able to look at to learn more? Not yet. Yeah, we're still trying to finalize our loan agreement with legal and we are finalizing our applications. And so we're trying to we're trying to keep it as similar to our existing program. So not creating a lot more documents. So it's taking a little longer, but we're hoping by September 1st, everything will be ready. Um, Sarah is the one that is leading that program, Sarah Bowles. Some of you may be familiar with her. And she's already been making contacts with um, local agencies and the housing authorities. And so also our front office staff, as we're getting calls from property owners, they're also mentioning that come September, there's going to be this new offer. So we're slowly putting um, the word out. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. And Hollis, if you can remember if that to include us, uh, you know, I know you have a connection to Jared. Uh, if you can, the announcement or anything that you have, I think there's a lot of utilities that'd be interested in that, in hearing about that um, program. Ted, get your hand up. Sure. Has, has anybody had any success in, let's say, dealing or kind of working collaboratively with, for us, it would be social development to kind of, while you're in there dealing with efficiency issues, you might be dealing with, let's say, excess water bills or rodent problems or mold or other things, let's say, trying to maybe kill more than one bird with, uh, kind of with two stones or two birds with one stone, I guess, or I got to get my mixed metaphors right. But uh, has anybody had any success in, let's say, trying to look at, I know we always look, want to look at retrofits holistically, but maybe even looking more holistically beyond that. And I'll say I have no solution, so I'm just asking the question. And, and while you're thinking of your response, everybody just pause for a second. I want to acknowledge that we're at the top of the hour. I forgot to mention in the beginning, we like to run over because when the discussion is going, we don't want to cut off. Um, I think Jeff can stay on for a few minutes, but I just want to tell you that um, next Thursday, we're taking the week off. We do not have a a call next Thursday, but on August 11th, we do. We'll be sending everybody a reminder on that one. That's also going to be a, uh, an interesting conversation about rural co cooperatives, broadband, and equity. And NRECA has a lot to say that is goes beyond just the cooperative community. So I also, I wish every single one of you could come to Nashville on October 13th. We're going to have an in-person workshop at TVA, and we're going to be talking about best practices in community engagement. And, and we understand that nobody has the answer right now. It's going to be all about you know, engaging your communities in multiple different things, including what Jeff was talking about today in programs and funding opportunities and, and going, how you understand what's going on in your communities. We'd love to have everybody there. It'd be so great if we had a hundred people and we could come up with a lot of great information to share with the utility industry. That being said, thank you for staying on. I want to go back to Ted's question. If you can stay on for another five, 10 minutes, um, please do. We're going to keep talking. Okay, Ted, let's go back to your question. Yeah, it was just more if people have had any, some successes around those synergies, again, dealing with water bills. I mean, that's another high bill likely that uh, folks in this situation may be finding, or again, or I think we've seen it a little bit in the chat, you know, energy efficiency might be problem number 10, maybe you've got rodent problems or mold problems or let's say other issues that are around the, the house that may be dealt with in conjunction with other agencies that in the, you know, again, in our, I'm in Canada, so in, in the province in our case, you know, we, we've had a very good relationship with our social development uh, agency uh, and working with them, but I, I stopped, I'm not sure we still cracked the nut on, we've still got a bunch of kind of a piecemeal of programs people would need to go through to really holistically help them. And I think they're kind of not in a position to, let's say, move their way through that complexity. 
So I was just wondering if anybody's really had some thoughts or had some successes in harmonizing some of these uh, problems into solutions. And um, Ted, would you think that that would be uh, like a utility that has water and power would, would potentially be looking at it in holistically like that? I, I well, I mean, I think, for instance, I'll think of a case where we already work together with certain, so I mean, you have a lot of efficiency programs to look at, look at radon, right, which is certainly not an electricity issue, but certainly a health issue in homes that we've, I think, done pretty good as an industry to, let's say, when you're in the home doing something, make sure you look up for radon. So are, are there other ways we can build these partnerships or to say, well, maybe you need to look at something else while you're there. And if it's identified at least, then it can be passed on to not, let people know that there actually is support in this area too, not just in efficiency. So it's kind of maybe sharing this information kind of laterally across where you're like, I see a hole in someone's roof. I'm not going to fix it, but <laughs> I, I can let somebody else know that it's there, or I see a mold problem, or I see something like this, mm -hmm. share that communication, I guess. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it would be interesting if anybody has channels to share that because I think that's tough um, uh, to, to identify a property that needs assistance and then do it holistically. But if you are a utility and you have done that or have success, please. Um, yeah. Maybe it's just passing the information again. It may not be that you're going to fix it, but you've right. seen something, right? Yeah. I used to go to New York and says, if you see something, say something, right? <laughs> well, we don't have the say something part of it. <laughs> we're, we're looking at, um, we are looking at trying to get a, um, we, we're developing an RFP where we would like want to try to find a local contractor that could be sort of a gap fill contractor for us because we don't really have a mechanism right now when a customer maybe wants weatherization, but they need a new roof before they can get weatherization. We don't have a way to do that. And so we're looking at trying to bring in um, a contractor then that we would have just sort of um, available to us uh, by bid that we could then send them out to take care of that. So then we could go next level and take some of these next steps. Um, I don't know that we've thought about it in terms of, you know, pest or other related things. And so that's given me something to think about there for sure of maybe we need to go further or have a full kind of complement of partners that we might be able to kind of engage, but that's a really good, good question. Ted, I have a question for you. Just, you know, you're from your perspective in Canada, you know, cl clearly in, in the States right now, energy equity is, a, is an emerging theme. We're seeing it more and more in, in the regulatory, the commissions, policymakers, even all the way up to the White House with the Justice 40 initiative. I'm just curious, in comparison, is, is it similar in Canada? Yeah, we are seeing that, especially since we do have carbon prices on our fuels and they're going to be escalating quite significantly. So I think it's going to not just cause us for efficiency. There'll be, you know, we have a lot of customers that are on oil, right? So they'll need to be, they're going to see, and they're, I would say their oil is certainly low income, at least in our area is overrepresented with oil. So we're going to see very, I would say, aggressive interventions to move people off oil as it's likely that the cost of oil is going to double with carbon pricing over the next decade. So there's going to be very aggressive uh, components of equity. And we're starting to see it. And we're actually, I think, just like Jeff said, we, we're seeing not just our, it's just not us wanting to do it. We're actually getting directive to do it and seeing government policy start to direct us in that direction. So, which is great. Uh, and that's why I kind of got back to this thing around success. Like how, you know, once people start telling you to do it, then they're going to want to know if you're successful. And then you're going to have to figure out a metric because I think, as Jeff said, like energy and demand is not the, not the metric of government, right? So it's uh, what are the metrics of equity? And again, I, I'll, I'll read that document that I was provided. So I actually wanted to go back on that on that document for a moment. Patrick, are you? Are you, I'm not sure if you're still there, Patrick Collins. Um, the you shared that, and that's not actually that not the first. I, I just added it to our resource library that we'll be uploading on smartgrid.gov as part of this project. And I noticed that that, that report was actually already there. So it was the, not the first time we've seen that, but I was curious if you, if you 
where did you find that resource? Is that a, I've noticed that there are a few different resources out there, quite a few. And I'm wondering if there's one that is becoming more of an industry standard or something that's being integrated or implemented more than others. I see Patrick there, but you're on mute. So I don't know if you are talking. That's okay. Maybe we can we we can uh, catch up with Patrick offline uh, over email. All right. I think um, Ross had a great question, but she has left the group, and she's just. But I'm going to ask her question to those that are left. How about rate design as a LMI um, tool? She wants to know if um, if anybody has uh, done explored options to address energy burden on low moderate income customers by restructuring their rate schedule. Anybody have experience with that who's still on the line? I know we're looking at not for like looking potentially at not for profit rates. I don't think we have any looking we're not looking specifically in the residential class to offer I would say low and moderate income rates. I think with I think again with Jeff's position, that would probably be half of our customers, right? So, you you, the probably the best thing is to make sure that everybody has accessibility to getting their consumption down, and because uh, I'm not sure, you know, lowering the rate by six percent or ten percent, like you'd have to make a significant rate change, I think, and then mm -hmm. you might have a, let's say a perverse outcome where people just use more because that's really what they need to be able to do is use more to meet their needs, right? They're they're already cutting back, so. Yeah, so you could actually be dis. Yeah, you could actually be hurting the people or, or hurting one of your program outcome goals, right? If you if you do that. Um, okay. Anybody else have anything they want to bring up? Ask, pose a question to the group, or share their experience. Right. Well, thank you so much for hanging in there with us today. This has been a, a really informative discussion. Jeff, thank you so much for all of your information um, and for everybody being on the line. We look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Sonia. Talk to you all in two weeks. Hopefully you all can join. Bye.